Welcome to Compliance Beat, the podcast for compliance and ethics professionals. We provide practical insights and answer your questions about compliance and ethics. Together, we'll stay up to date on current trends so that your program stays effective. Brought to you by Moorhead Compliance Consulting. Here's your host, Eric Moorhead. Should we be investing in an anti-corruption program? First, let's talk about anti-corruption risk. Anti-corruption risk is a high-severity, low-likelihood risk for nearly all organizations. What I mean by that is, if it happens, then it can be a very, very serious risk and can impact the company for many years and for many millions of dollars and can include, and often does include, individual employees spending time in federal prison. So that's very high severity. What I mean by low likelihood is that the overall risk that is perceived in the compliance community at large for anti-corruption is not always, this is certainly not always the case, but is often considered a much more highly likely event than what it actually is. Let's look at enforcement. The last year we have full data for, 2015, there were 100 non-prosecution and deferred prosecution settlements entered into by the Department of Justice and various corporate defendants. Those of you that are steeped in anti-corruption or FCPA already know what a non-prosecution or deferred prosecution agreement is, but for the benefit of everyone else, I'll just quickly say a non-prosecution or deferred prosecution agreement is a mechanism by which the Department of Justice and a defendant organization settle a potential criminal case without actually having the case either filed, as in the case of a non-prosecution agreement, or having the case, the criminal case, deferred, as in the case of a deferred prosecution agreement, for a period of time in which if the organization or company completes all the terms of the agreement, the case will either be dismissed or never filed. These NPAs and DPAs have become very popular over the last decade or so as mechanisms to resolve corporate cases that that could otherwise lead to criminal charges for the organization. They're perhaps most famously known for resolving FCPA or Foreign Corrupt Practices Act cases, but they're used for a wide variety of criminal cases or potential criminal cases. And in fact, again, look if we look at 2015, there were 100 non-prosecution and deferred prosecution settlements, but only two of those were for the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act or FCPA. Only two, so 2% in the last year we have full data for. In the same year, in 2015, if we look at the United States Sentencing Commission's data on organizational sentencing, and in other words, companies who pled guilty to felony offenses in federal court and received sentences, we find that 181 organizations pled guilty in 2015, and of those 181 organizations, exactly zero were for FCPA. FCPA stalwarts will point out that there are civil settlements through the Securities and Exchange Commission that can also settle FCPA claims. This is true, and there were civil settlements in 2015, nine of them. Also in 2015, the Environmental Protection Agency, which also has civil authority to bring cases against organizations, referred 141 cases to the Department of Justice for criminal proceedings. So those were 
both individuals and organizations, so that's not all companies. For comparison's sake, in 2015, eight individuals were prosecuted criminally under the FCPA. Looking back at civil cases on the enforcement side for the Environmental Protection Agency, we see that 132 civil judicial enforcement cases were concluded, and over 1,400 administrative cases were concluded. I provide all this data not to suggest that somehow environmental enforcement is being overlooked or that environmental enforcement is more important to your organization than anti-corruption. The whole point here is to understand that there is data to look at, both externally and internally. There are a myriad of other regulatory entities that provide for corporate integrity agreements, civil settlements, penalties. We all know this. In compliance, we deal with it every day. I just want to suggest that FCPA enforcement, anti-corruption enforcement, is no different than the other compliance risk topics that individual compliance officers and individual organizations have to consider. All it means is that if you're asking, should we be investing in an anti-corruption program, then that's probably not the question you should be asking. Because if you're asking it, you probably don't have a program to speak of or you wouldn't be asking the question. And you can't answer that question, yes or no, and you need to answer it, yes or no, unless you ask a few much more basic questions first. The most important thing is you must ask, what are the compliance risks for this organization? Have you done a compliance risk assessment? Have you evaluated what risks you face as an organization? And how have you done that? And how recently have you done that? And how comfortable are you with that risk assessment? And then the second question that you have to ask before you get to a specific question about anti-corruption or any particular risk topic is, what are we doing about those risks? What's in place to address those risks at this point? Again, none of this is to rail against FCPA or anti-corruption as a non-issue. It's an important issue. And I understand this as well as anyone does. Over 10 years ago, I stood next to a man sentenced to 63 months in federal prison for violating the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. I understand the severity and I understand the significance of this statute and the risks that are involved in corruption and bribery. I'm not minimizing it at all. I'm just suggesting that if the question being asked is, should we be investing in anti-corruption? That's probably not the appropriate question. If you have a question you want answered on the podcast, be sure to submit it on compliancebeat.com. Now here's the upshot. The upshot is that while anti-corruption is a very serious risk, it is also a risk with a very low likelihood for many organizations. Every organization needs to understand their own particular risks. And doing that will answer the question for you as to whether you need to have an anti-corruption program. Today, we have three questions with Doug Vivia. Doug is VP of International Insurance Compliance at Prudential Financial and is a member of Prudential's International Insurance Compliance Team, where he supports the activities of Prudential's Japanese businesses, Prudential of Japan, Gibraltar Life, and Prudential Gibraltar Financial. He oversees international insurance efforts in conducting third-party anti-bribery corruption due diligence and is a member of Prudential's Enterprise FCPA Advisory Committee. Doug previously spent 22 years in the FBI, where he supervised investigations of FCPA, 
corruption, securities fraud, and other financial crimes. He was responsible for the identification of risks specific to these programs and development of operational programs to mitigate those risks. Doug is frequently a speaker and panelist at numerous domestic and international corruption, compliance, AML, and financial crimes training events. He is also a graduate of Clarkson University with a PhD in chemistry. Welcome, Doug. Hello. Can you talk about your career journey? How did you end up in your current role? I'm happy to. I'll start in reverse order. As you as you mentioned, I have a background in chemistry and started my professional career as a research chemist working for Big Pharma. At some point in time there, I had somewhat of a Walter Mitty moment and decided that I wanted to do public service and, and ended up in the FBI. And while that all seems to be somewhat unrelated, I, I'd like to think that the skill sets that you acquire uh, pursuing a high-level degree in uh, uh, one of the physical sciences prepares you to be a good problem solver and good analytical thinker. And and that uh, that worked very well in my timeline in the FBI and is also a critical skill for compliance professionals. The value of the FBI and in, in the particular experience that I had was that it really was working kind of like the enforcement side of compliance. You know, when you spend most of my career doing anti-bribery, anti-corruption investigations of both domestic officials and then FCPA-related matters, it provides a level of insight to many of the challenges that we deal with in compliance today. And coupled with the other experience in the FBI doing securities fraud and other financial crimes matters, it really provided an opportunity to have a lot of interaction with the corporate sector, and not just always in an adversarial role, but also in times where we were providing you know, advice and guidance to them in, in response to some issues that they may have. So one of the biggest values of that was the ability to have those partnerships and some of those relationships already formed before I left the government. And when I joined Prudential, I originally joined Prudential with an emphasis on building out relationships among our different business units with regard to the approach and handling of investigations. But in that particular role, I partnered with our compliance groups to to build those relationships. And that eventually led to an opportunity to join compliance directly, which is ultimately what my, my long-term aspiration was anyway. So that worked out very well for me. Now, if you could go back in time, not too far, but before you had uh, taken on the compliance role and tell your younger self one thing before you assumed those responsibilities, what would that one piece of advice be? Well, like many of us, uh, we are sometimes, you know, these type A individuals who believe, you know, we can do it alone and, and you know, it's better to just try and buckle down, get the problem or the task accomplished without having to necessarily socialize issues or try and form a team to approach these issues. And and if I could go back, I would probably try to emphasize the opportunity that comes with building teamworks and building teams. And the advantage of that is simply, there's two things. I think one, it demonstrates your commitment to being collaborative and seeking other input, which results in a better product at the end of the day. And secondly, it's quite frankly, it's more enjoyable to have to be part of a social network of of colleagues that are collaborating to tackle a problem of, of mutual interest to everyone. And the another derivative benefit, I think, is to you have the ability to form a team, if you will, of trusted individuals within the company that can provide a sounding board where perhaps you don't need to be quite so careful about how you phrase things and how you can approach different ideas. And I think everyone would benefit by having that that network of trusted individuals to rely upon. 
I think that's wise advice for everybody, not just those in compliance. Uh, if you could peer into your crystal ball for us for a moment, what one or two trends in compliance and ethics do you think will be important over the next few years? Yeah, so I, th- I think there's a couple of items that are that I think are specifically related, and I think all of us are faced with you know ever challenging budget limitations, and and so there's always a greater emphasis for us to try and do do more with less, or to do things more efficiently, and and I think the the most likely manifestation of that is going to be try uh, focus on information management. The information management to to kind of do a better job of documenting our compliance efforts, how we evidence our analysis of what our risks are and what we do to mitigate those risks. Uh, clearly, that's the expectation of the enforcement community that, that compliance departments should be able to have documentation for their compliance activities. But beyond that, I think there's an opportunity for us to use information better to be a bit more predictive in our compliance focus, or at least more targeted, to better utilize information that helps us manage risks, both changes in current state that could be predictive of the emerging compliance risks, or ways in which we can better manage current risks. And I think the value of having access to more and more relevant information will be the emphasis for a lot of compliance programs as we evolve over the very near term. Well, Doug, thanks for joining us today, and thanks for answering our three questions. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to Compliance Beat. Check out our website, compliancebeat.com. This podcast is brought to you by Moorhead Compliance Consulting. Be sure to check us out at moorheadconsulting.com.